Good evening, and it's wonderful to be here with you this evening. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're certainly delighted that you can meet here with us in our midweek service, and tonight we continue in our study in the book of Revelation. Um, as we start studying the book of Revelation, we've kind of been a bunch of different places, so I kind of want to review how we got to the point we're going to get to tonight in, in Revelation chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That's a lot of chapters i got to cover. So, chapter 1 begins there. It's an introduction, and if you remember our context clues, and we talked a lot about context, and we may have overemphasized a little bit, but it's very important. In the first four verses, you get the who and the when this letter is written to. You get the who, who is the seven churches of Asia. You get the when, because there's phrases like, it's time, is, it's going to happen soon, it's going to come to pass soon. It's not like this modern idea of what Revelation is, these things are going to happen some 2,000 years later, that these were things that were going to happen at that time. And there was a reason he wrote to those seven churches in Asia, because he said there's going to be persecution that comes, and he, you remember he compliments them on some things, and then he says these things you're weak in, and if you're weak in these things and you remain weak, you're going to fail, and your endurance is going to fail when the persecution comes. So it was very important that they understood that. And you go to chapter 2, and this is the condition of the seven churches of Asia. In chapter 3, it's about God who reigns supreme. In chapter 4, we get this imagery of the Lamb who opens the book of life. In chapter 5, it's about persecution of the church. Chapter 6 is about those saints of whom which are being persecuted. And chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 7 is about a warning to the persecutor in chapter 8 and 9. Chapter 10 is the results of this persecution. Chapter 11, the church preaches during persecution. Do you see this common thing going over and over and over again? It's about persecution that's going to come to these churches. Chapter 12, we learn about the dragon, the beast, and chapter 13. Chapter 14, Rome is judged. Chapter 15 and 16 is the complete destruction of Rome. And chapter 17 is the identification of the prostitute, which is the power of Babylon or Rome. So I'm going to tell you this this evening. We got a lot of information to cover. So, which I don't want to question my elders here tonight, but how do you give the long-winded guy all of this to cover in one night? Because we're going to be going fast tonight, guys. Um, as we go and we look at this, we're not going to do a lot of reading toward till we get till chapter seven. So. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to tell you the story the best I can. We're going to hit highlight verses as we go through these chapters. So, the dragon, the beast, and the prostitute, we open up in chapter 12. And what we're given an imagery of a woman who is, in, who is pregnant and is having labor pains. And the imagery is of this woman as one who is of great honor. And she's a glorious woman. She's been given authority. She has a crown with 12 stars on it. Uh, she had, and her, the moon is under her feet. And then we're introduced to another image that comes in, and it's a dragon. And this dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and on these horns are diadems and crowns, and those things become clear in chapter 17 as to what they are. And they're a symbol of, what they're a symbol, though, is of power and authority. And it talks about that dragon's tail knocking down a third of the stars down to the earth. And if you know in prophecy and things like that, when it talks about stars, it's usually representation of nations. So this dragon would have authority over many nations. 
And the dragon is, we're told in verse 9 what the dragon is or who the dragon is. It very plainly tells us that it is Satan. The dragon is attempting to devour the child. When the child is born, he's not successful. And it talks about the child, it says the child would rule with a rod rod of iron. And it talks about the child being ascended into heaven. And we know who that child is. That child was Christ. The woman in verse 7 flees into the wilderness for protection. It says that she's nursed there for 1,260 days. Now you'll see this terminology, 1,260 days, 42 months. You'll see a time, a times, and a half a time. And they all mean the same thing. And it's used multiple times throughout the book of Revelation. And this is to show a time in which something was going to happen, whether it was persecution or in this case, it says that she would be nourished during this time as she flees in there. (laughs) So, Satan or the dragon goes to heaven and it talks about a war with Michael. And obviously, Satan loses that war with Michael and it says that he's cast down to earth. And he's angry and he's wroth, but you get in verse 12 or chapter 12 and verse 10, you see the complete victory of Christ. And it says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. And so this shows the victory in Christ Jesus. And it says how the victory was won. It was won through His blood. It was won through the, the te- uh, by the word of their testimony. And it was won by people who were willing to give up their lives and sacrifice their lives for the cause of that. So in, ver- in verse 13, the Satan or the dragon unsuccessful pursues the woman who gave birth again. And it says that she would, was given wings of eagles, or wings of an eagle, and she escaped. And she would escape from him. And then you're told once again this time, time, time a time and a half a time again. So another time frame in which she would have nourishment again. So now, unsuccessful in that, now the dragon turns to those that are the offspring. And the dragon was wroth with, his, with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So those that would follow after Christ, those that would obey Christ, he is now going to turn his anger and his wrath on them. And as you close out chapter 12, you're left with this scene in which this dragon is standing in the sands of the sea And in chapter 13 opens, and this is what it says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and his seat and great authority. So the imagery that we're given now, we're introduced into another vicious beast and this beast rises up out of the water and he has all of these crazy things about him he's got all of these different the mouth of a lion 
All these different things, the feet of a bear, it's just an ugly, nasty beast of an animal. But the important part of that is what the dragon gave him. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. That's what the beast was given. And the image of this beast comes directly from Daniel. And this is where you start kind of tying Daniel and Revelation together. You remember, God told Daniel to seal what he had given him. And John was revealing that. And you have to remember, keeping in context, as this was things that were going on in their lifetime. And you can connect the things that go on with this beast in Revelation 13 to the beast in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 7. If you look at it and connect all of those, they represent empires. They represent the empires which begin with the Babylonian Empire, the great empire that it was. The Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire was thrown, overthrown by the Grecian Empire. And the Grecian Empire was overthrown by the Roman Empire. And to show that Daniel and John are you seeing the same beast, we can quickly take a look at some of the comparisons from the book of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, you see a beast, ten horns, a leopard, a bear, a lion. All of those me measure up. You see them, a mouth speaking great things. In Daniel chapter 11, it talks about, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify, magnify himself above all. So this is clear that... What John was seeing in Revelation chapter 13 is what Daniel was seeing whenever he had his prophecy as well. Verse 1 tells us that the Roman Empire is going to exercise great authority and power. And this power was given to it by the dragon. This power was given to it, the Roman Empire, by Satan himself. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40, it says there... <clears throat> And there shall be a fourth king, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall crush, it shall break and crush all of these. So the Roman Empire that was forecasted in Daniel is the same thing as what John is seeing in Revelation. And he, they're both exactly right that they were a beast. They were of iron. They would crush anything that got in their way. And as we continue to go see through this, you're going to see historically what they were doing. In, in verse 3 of chapter 13, you see an unusual, there's an unusual statement that's made about the beast. One of the heads of the beasts has a fatal wound, but it heals. And there's a few things historically that you could line up, but I think most in this refers to the civil war that happened in Rome. That broke out in the Roman Empire, and it lasted for about one year. And it lasted after the year after Emperor, Emperor Nero died. You had uh, Galba, uh, Otho, Vitellus, and Vespian all seized the throne in one year. Two of them would be murdered, one of them would commit suicide, and Vespian would kind of bring stabilization to the Roman Empire. And if you think about that, it says it makes the statement that it, this was a, it was wounded, 
But then it came back, everything was okay, and then everybody began to worship Him. And that's exactly what happened with the Roman Empire. There was this moment that looked like there was weakness, that maybe the Roman Empire might have had a problem that lasted for about a year, and then after Vespian came in and kind of stabilized everything, you then began to have worship of the Roman Empire, and people began to worship the emperors also during this time. So that was very important that you notice that. And the people perceive the Roman Empire as invincible, that it's unable to collapse, that it's the strongest, and that it's never going to fall. And they give their allegiance to the Roman Empire. And they give their allegiance to the beast. As it goes on and talks about it, it talks about the beast having authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. I want you to consider the expansion of the Roman Empire and how far they expanded. And this is the, the Roman Empire under Emperor Trajan in 98 to 117 AD expanded the empire to its furthest points that it would ever grow. And it covered multiple languages and nations and tribes and all of those things that the beast said was going to have control over exactly what would happen. The only ones who were not worshiping the beast, those, it says in verse 8, are in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Those that didn't worship the beast, those that didn't worship the devil, those that didn't follow the Roman Empire and worship the Roman empires, those would be murdered. And that's exactly what it says in verse 8. In chapter 13 and verse 9, it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And this reminded me of something that occurred to me many months ago when I was studying. I can't recall a time that God told those that were suffering persecution, I'm going to make it better. As a matter of fact, throughout Revelation, it's this repeated cycle of you're going to suffer, you're going to be punished, you're going to suffer persecution. And in this, he just said, flat out says that. He flat out says, if you're going to go to captivity, go to captivity. If you're going to be killed, you're going to be killed. But here's what this is a call for. This is a call for your endurance and your endurance and your faith to last the whole time. Your faith is in Christ. You can be numbered with those in verse 8 that were slain. And then I think about us. We're a little bit mamby-pamby when it comes to stuff like that, aren't we? The slightest inconvenience in modern Western Christianity, and we're all up in arms. When we read passages like that, we need to really understand what these people were going through and the cause of which they were going through it for. And it should be to our shame that whenever we read a passage like that and I simply cannot proclaim Christianity in the presence of others, and these people were dying by the sword daily, And we turn away. I find passages like this fascinating, and I find them extremely convicting, to be completely honest. In chapter 
Continuing on in chapter 13, we're introduced to this wicked-looking beast here. Another beast comes along. And this beast rises out of the earth. Remember, the first one came out of the sea, and this one comes out of the earth. This one has two horns like a, like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. And this is interesting because it is trying to look like it's a lamb. It's giving, there is a, a worship or a spiritual aspect to this. That it's trying to represent itself as something that is spiritual by, its, by what it looks like. But then it says it speaks like a dragon. So it's tongue, and what it was saying, it shows to imply that there's some sort of a religious role here. And the religious, religious role is implied by it trying to make, make it seem like it's the true Lamb of God. Verse 12 reveals that this religious role went even further. It compels the earth and the inhabitants of the earth to worship the first beast. It compels the inhabitants of the earth to worship Rome. And it talks about the various ways it does this fire from heaven and does all of these things. And it manipulates people into worshiping the first beast. In the first 10 verses of Revelation 13, we saw the first beast representing the Roman Empire, its military and its might, political power. In, in, in the emperors who speak blasphemies against God and God's people is in the second beast. In this religious aspect that it has, the carrying out of the authority of power and compelling people to worship this beast. It shows in the second beast various localities in Rome, throughout Roman Empire, that the inhabitants had what you would call empire worship. David brought that up in his lesson whenever he read, uh, went over the seven churches of Asia, that there are even today, there's still representation of different statues of people worshiping these Roman emperors. And the beast is given another title in the book of Revelation. In chapter 16, it says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It, ex it exercises all the authority of the first beast in the present, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. In chapter 16, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So you have in this second beast another name. It was the false prophet. He sees it and identifies it for what it is. It's manipulating people to worship emperors, not God. And that's the job it was supposed to do. And we have three main characters in Revelation chapter 16. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And this is why the description of the beast is viewing... Like it's a lamb, because it manipulated people to get it to do what it's bidding. The second beast is described as performing all of these great signs. And what are the points of the great signs? Well, in verse 14 it tells us, And by the signs that, I, that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
So now you see this representation of emperor worship coming in. Idol worship coming in. Making images of the emperors. Whenever you think about it, there were councils that were representatives in major cities in the province of Asia. You can read about them historically. And these groups especially and specifically promoted the worship of Roman emperors. And there was punishment and discrimination for those that did not worship Roman emperors. In verses 16 and 17, it concludes with very sad imagery. People would be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead to signify that they couldn't buy anything or do any business. Now, that's not necessarily that it was a physical mark that they couldn't do or that they would put on their head. It was more so there were sanctions placed against Christians during that time. There were sanctions... There were certificates of business that they couldn't get. There were certificates of business selling your produce that if you did not have allegiance to the Roman emperor, you couldn't sell your produce. You had to have a certificate to bury a loved one. And if you did not have allegiance to the Roman emperor, then you could not bury your loved one. Whenever you think about what he says The Christians could not escape the pressure of idol worship. It was so ingrained in the socioeconomic status of every person that a Christian could not get away from it. It affected every aspect of their life. And it's very important that we understand, as he says in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. And this is where people go crazy. This is where people absolutely go bonkers. Is the vaccine passport, is that the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast technology is here. That you're, They're going to put chips in all of us, and this is the mark of the beast. You see these tattoos that say 666. When I was growing up at Boys Ranch, I was in junior high, they had a, a weird deal where they were worried about satanic worship. And Sunday school, they made us learn about all this satanic stuff. And the only thing it did for a bunch of derelict teenagers would just compel us to do the things that they tell us not to do. That's all it did. This one right here in the back, I sat and watched a kid in my dorm tattoo with Indian ink that we stole from the art room and just a needle, 666, and that goat's head on his shoulder. Out of pure rebellion. It was so bad that they had to actually get it removed. And this was in, you know, late 80s, early 90s. There wasn't, you know, the removal technology that there is now. 666 is not this number of the beast. It's not this thing that this, we represent the Antichrist. That's not what it is. What is 777? Every time you read in Revelation and you read about triple sevens, what is that? What does that denote? It denotes completeness. As we read later on in chapter 15, 
their 777 is complete destruction of the Roman Empire. What is 666? Well, that's obviously short of perfection. We read in there that it calculated the number of a man. That should be more interpreted as man's number. It's not an individual this represents. That's not what it's talking about. And one of the problems with this is there's this process of taking phrases, Roman phrases, or Latin phrases even, and transcribing it and flipping it back to, from Greek to Hebrew, back to Greek, and giving it all these numbers. And if you're being honest, you can do that a lot of different ways. And you can manipulate. It's kind of like statistics. You can kind of manipulate it to, to do what you want to do. And the reason I say that is this. There, Trevor talked about premillennialism and the crazy stuff that premillennialism is and all the different aspects of that. And there is something more undercurrent, though, that is represented in Revelation that people teach. And it's not as popular, but it's out there. That everything going on in Revelation represents the Roman Catholic Church. And I've seen some pretty amazing, I have to say it's pretty impressive, connections from Daniel to Revelation in the Roman Catholic Church. And I've seen where they take 666 and they run it through all these processes and it winds up being the Pope. <laughs> it's just nuts. It's not the number of a man. It's the number of man. It's man's number. Why? Because man falls short every single time. As we go into chapter 14, we read about the lamb and the 144,000. In verse 5, and it says, In their mouth was no lie was found in him, for they are blameless. And the mother angel and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he, is also, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. So you have this remnant of the 144,000 and this warning for them not to submit and begin worshiping this Roman emperors. In chapter 15, we read about seven angels, seven plagues, this completeness of destruction. In those seven angels, it talks about, and I saw what appeared to be a, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And all those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing by the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. In verse 6 and 8, it says, And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And this is talking about the complete and total destruction of the Roman Empire. In chapter 16, there's the seven bowls of God's wrath. So you now have seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls, triple sevens. Complete and total destruction. In verse 17, it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and the cursed God 
And they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. We're going to do a little bit more reading in chapter 17 because it's necessary that we slow down a little bit. In chapter 17, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on, seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried him away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting in a, on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So the woman, as he's carried off into the wilderness, he sees this woman, this prostitute, sitting on this beast that's the same beast that we were introduced in chapter 12. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup full of abominations and in the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled. So John is given this new revelation of a woman that he sees sitting on that dragon. And he marvels at this. He's astonished by it. Marvel is not what we, in the terms that we think it is. He's astonished by it. He's astonished by the things that she says, the cup from which she drinks, the lives that have been taken at her command. The angel goes on to tell her, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast and with the seven heads and ten horns that carry hers carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. You know, you just kind of wish he would say, it's Rome. <laughs> but to Trevor's point on that, think about during this time frame, if you were carrying around a copy of Revelation and a Roman authority were to take it from you and then read, oh, this is Rome, it wouldn't be good news. It was a very God-inspired, godly, intelligent way of getting a message to a group of people. He goes on to say this, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast." These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Are we clear as mud on what just happened there? Does everybody know exactly what that means? Because she said, I'm going to tell you what it is, and I have, reading that, I'm sure you're looking at it going, I have no clue. Well, it's not as difficult as it seems. Whenever you start looking at history and marrying up to historical events and things, it's not that difficult. 
John's receiving more details about this, and the angel tells us much more about the seven heads and the ten horns now. Now, really, most scholars have no doubt that the seven hills refer to the seven hills of Rome. If you read any historical information on Rome, it talks about them being established upon seven hills. And there's no doubt that a first century reader would understand this reference in any other way as a reference to Rome. That's all it could be. But the angel goes on further. He says the seven heads, are, we're told, are also seven kings. And the angel goes on and numbers the seven kings and gives details about them. Although the details to us are like the one's come, one's not yet come, one's going to come, one's going to... It doesn't make a lot of sense whenever you look at it. And to be honest, this is kind of that point in Revelation where there is no way you can symbolically apply anything here. This is actually literal. That's what this is. He's talking about something literal going on. And the literal reality of this actually goes back to Daniel and this connection of all of these kings. Whenever you consider the Roman emperors, this is what we have. He talks about seven. The angel tells him there's seven, right? Well, Julius, you wouldn't count that because that wasn't an emperor. That was a dictator. He kind of wasn't put in that position. Whenever you begin counting from there, and you read about, it talks about in Revelation chapter 17 that there were five fallen. And you number those five fallen off. And then it skips, and it talks about a few more. Well, why did it skip? I've got ten here. You're only talking about seven in Revelation. Why? Well, that goes back to the book of Daniel. Daniel talks about three little horns that are uprooted by one horn. And this is the connection to that. In Daniel chapter 17, verses 19 and 20, these horns were uprooted quickly. And what was that? Well, we talked about that earlier. The three kings or emperors in that one year in 69 AD after Nero died, there were four kings that would take over. Three of them would be murdered, excuse me, two of them would be murdered, and one of them would commit suicide. That was Galba, Otho, and Vitellus. They all were removed very quickly. Vespasian in 69 through 79, which is in this time frame, that could be argued, but that's where I landed on that. And then he goes on, talks about one who would rule a little while, which was Titus. Titus wouldn't rule for very long. And then Domitian, who is like the beast, belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. Now, when you think about all of these and how that marries up, it's very beautiful in my opinion. It's At first glance and first reading of it, it's kind of crazy. But whenever you sit down and align these to historical events, emperors and kings, you can clearly see connected with Daniel what they're trying to get to the point of. Whenever you consider Domitian, Domitian was one of the most vile rulers of that time. As a matter of fact, he assigned himself as God and said, essentially said that he was God himself. You can go look at the British Museum and there are coins that Domitian had that pretty much signified that, that he essentially said that he was God. These ten horns in chapter 
or verses 12 through 14, the ten horns are a description that were also called the false prophet. So what these ten horns represent were the local provinces and the rulers, the Herods, if you will. The people that had authority, although it wasn't for very long, but they didn't have the authority of the kings. So, and these rulers gave their allegiance to the Roman Empire, the beast, and they would make war on his behalf. Not war in general, but war against the saints of Christ. That's where the persecution was coming in. This chapter concludes defiantly stating who the woman, the great prostitute is. It says that she is a great city that has dominion of the kings of earth, and Rome is that great prostitute. There could be no other description of who that is. Her demise will come when the peoples under the empire turn against her and desolate her. Roman Empire had its rule for about 500 years. And eventually, they would rot from the inside. And they would be desolated because of their impurity, their immorality, and their absolute refusal to do anything in a God-serving way. There's a lesson in that, but I think it's important that as we close this out today, we need to understand something. What's on full display here? As we've gone through six chapters in the book of Revelation, what comes to my mind and what's on full display is God's power. When aligned with historical events, God's power is on complete and total display. And it's summarized in this one, and the answer to this one question. Who still remains? Rome or Christ's kingdom? That is the evidence of God's power. That God's plan will not be usurped by worldly power. That there is nothing that worldly power can do to stop God's plan. It's ironic when you think about it. Not only did the church survive, but it thrived. And it grew during this persecution. And all the phases of persecution that they went through. Not only did it thrive, but it, not only did it survive, but it thrived. Consider this irony. What is the predominant religion of Rome? It's Christianity. How ironic is that? For 500 years, the beast tried to destroy Christianity. 1,500 years later, Christianity is what raised supreme in the very beast's place. Where are most of the early Christian artifacts located? Rome. There is no doubt whenever you consider those facts and you consider the historical accuracy that's lined up between Revelation and Daniel that there is no denying God's power. 
I loved doing this study because it reminded me of that power. That power that says, I will take care of my own, not physically, spiritually. But my plan reigns supreme. That's the power He calls you to submit to. That is the power He wants to reign in your life. The question is, have you submitted to that power? There is no questioning who's in control whenever you look at what God did to Rome. Think about what He can do for you. It is the power of salvation in His hand and His hand only. Will you submit to that? If you've not thought about that, why not? If you've not taken action on that, why not? I beg of you to take the time to submit to Him and His power. We can help you with that tonight. We can study with you if you're confused in any way. If you want to submit to Him in the waters of baptism, we can help you with that also. We would ask that you would come forward as we sing the song that has been selected.